Professor Martin Luther actually changed the world because he was captive to the word of God. Romans 1 verse 16 to 17 we read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to the salvation of everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The Reformation was a defining moment when the Christian convictions and courage of the Reformers met the crossroads of decision and engaged in the battlefields of belief and behaviour. If I had a place to stand, I could move the world. The Greek engineer Archimedes was referring to the wonders of the lever. In principle, the capacities of a lever is unlimited. An ordinary weakling could move a rock the size of a house. All that he would need would be a fulcrum, a pole strong enough so it would not break and long enough to multiply the force. That and a place to stand. The force multiplying physics of the lever are a function of distance. The heavier the object and the weaker the person trying to move the object, the longer the pole would need to be and the further away from it you would have to stand. However, with the right fulcrum and the right bar and the right distance, all you would need to do would be to push the lever down and the boulder, no matter how heavy, would move. Theoretically, Archimedes famously declared, with the right fulcrum and the right bar and distance, you could put a lever to plant earth and move the world itself, as long as you had a place to stand. Well, on the 18th of April, 1521, a 37-year-old professor of Wittenberg University found himself hauled in front of the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Standing before the assembled political and spiritual authorities of his day, Professor Luther was presented with a simple choice. Will you recant and reject everything you've been teaching about the gospel? Or will you be cast out of the church as a heretic and out of the state as a traitor, effectively to be burned at the stake? That was what was at stake. Martin Luther's reply moved the world. He changed history because he had a place to stand. Dr. Martin Luther declared, My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. Our Lord Jesus Christ declared that our faith would be able to move mountains. Martin Luther's faith moved the world because he had a place to stand. He stood on the word of God. The fulcrum he used was the gospel. And this was bounced on the bar of the law of God. Dr. Martin Luther actually fulfilled what the Greek engineer Archimedes had hypothesized about. Standing on the word of God, using the bar of the law of God and the fulcrum of the gospel, Martin Luther's faith not only moved mountains, it changed the world. It brought an end to the Middle Ages. It ushered in the modern world. The Protestant Reformation, with the resultant scientific revolution and the industrial revolution, produced the most productive, prosperous and free nations in the history of the world. All of this because Luther had a place to stand and he made a stand on the unchangeable word of Almighty God. The Reformation was one of the most momentous turning points in world history. It was led by men of strong convictions, deep convictions, strong faith, great intelligence, high moral standards and tremendous courage. But towering above all these great reformers, Martin Luther stands out as the most courageous, controversial and influential reformer of all time. Luther has been alternatively described as the brilliant scholar who rediscovered the central message of the Bible. A prophet like Elijah, like John the Baptist, who came to reform God's people. The liberator who rose to free his people from the oppression of Rome. He was the last man in the Middle Ages and the first modern man. Ulrich Zwingli of Switzerland described Luther as a Hercules who defeated the tyranny of Rome. Pope Leo X called Luther a wild boar ravaging his vineyard. Emperor Charles V described him as a demon in the habit of a monk. Martin Luther was born on the 10th of November 1483 in Eisleben, Saxony. His father Hans Luther worked hard to climb the social ladder from his humble peasant origins to become a successful copper mining entrepreneur. Hans married Margarita Lindemann 
the daughter of a prosperous, gifted family that included doctors, lawyers, university professors and politicians. Hans Luder owned several mines and smelters and he became a member of the city council in Mansfield. This is where Martin Luther was raised under the strict discipline typical of the time, meaning he got lots of canings and hidings which was normal at that stage. At age seven, Martin Luther started to study Latin at school. Hans intended his son to become a lawyer, so he sent him to University of Erfurt before his 14th birthday. What were you doing when you were 13? Well, Martin Luther was entering university. Martin proved to be extraordinarily intelligent and he earned his bachelor's and master's degrees in the shortest time possible allowed by the statutes of the university. Martin proved so effective in debating, he earned the nickname the philosopher. And bear in mind, debating at that stage was debating in Latin, not debating in his home language. As Martin excelled in his studies, he began to be concerned about the state of his soul and the suitability of the career that his father had set before him. While travelling on foot near the town of Stottenheim, a violent thunderstorm brought Martin Luther literally to his knees. And with lightning striking all around him, Luther cried out for protection to the patron saint of miners. He didn't know enough to even pray to God directly. He prayed to Saint Anne, help me and I'll become a monk. The storm around him matched the storm within his own soul. Although his parents were pious religious people, they were shocked when he abandoned his legal studies at Erfurt and entered the Augustinian monastery. Now I've heard some Americans say Martin Luther was a university dropout. Well that's really a completely inaccurate term. A man who had earned his bachelor's and his master's and was working on his doctorate in law and almost completed it is not a dropout, especially when he went on to earn another doctorate in Holy Scriptures. Martin was 21 years old in July 1505 when he gave away all of his possessions, including his loot, his many books and his clothing, and entered the black cloister of the Augustinians. Luther quickly adapted to monastic life, throwing himself wholeheartedly into manual labor, spiritual disciplines and the studies required. He went way beyond the fasts, the prayers, the ascetic practices required. He forced himself to sleep on a cold stone floor without a blanket, whipping himself, seriously damaging his health. This is the oldest sketching we have of Martin Luther. It's uh, dating back to when he was 37 years old at the time that he confronted the emperor um, in Worms in 1521. So this is a likeness of Luther from someone who sketched him as he was at the Diet of Worms. And you can see uh, his face is gaunt, he's broken his health, so much fasting, so much um, whipping himself, his health was seriously damaged. He was described as devout, earnest, relentlessly self-disciplined, unsparingly self-critical, intelligent, and impeccable. Luther rigorously pursued the monastic ideal. He devoted himself to study, to prayer, to sacraments. He wearied his priests out with his confessions. He would go to confessions at least once a day, sometimes more than once a day. And his punishments of himself were fasting, sleeplessness, and flagellation, meaning whipping himself um, on his bare skin with a um, whip of multiple knots in it. Um, Luther's wise, godly superior, Johannes von Staupitz, recognized Martin Luther's great intellectual talents and to channel his energies away from excessive introspection. He was obviously too self-critical. Most of us are not self-critical enough, but Luther was on the other extreme. And so his superior ordered him to undertake further studies, including Greek, Hebrew and the scriptures, to become a university lecturer for the order. From the Protestant perspective, some of the best counsel ever given. From the Catholic perspective, probably some of the worst counsel ever given. Martin Luther was ordained a priest in 1507 and he studied and taught at the universities of Wittenberg and Erfurt. And in 1512, Martin Luther received his doctoral degree and took the traditional vow on becoming a professor of Witten University that he would faithfully teach and defend the scriptures. Now this vow would be a tremendous source of encouragement to him later. Martin Luther never saw himself as a rebel, but he is a theologian seeking to be faithful to the vow required of him to teach and defend the Holy Scripture. 
Martin Luther committed most of the New Testament to memory and all of the old, much of the Old Testament and all of the Psalms he knew off by heart. The University of Wittenberg had been founded by Prince Frederick of Saxony in 1502. Luther's friend from his university days in Erfurt, George Ballatin, was now chaplain and secretary to the prince and closely involved in the prince's pet project of his new university. Wittenberg at this time was a small little river town with only about 2,000 residents, but was strategic. Frederick wanted to build it up to his new capital of Saxony. It dominated the crossing of the river. It was a majorly important uh, junction, and uh, Wittenberg dominated Saxony. From 1513 to 1517, Luther lectured at the university on the Psalms, Romans, and Galatians. Being a university professor would have been a full-time job, but Martin Luther had other responsibilities as well. He was the supervisor for 11 Augustinian monasteries, including the one at Wittenberg, which is where the university started. Luther was also responsible to preach regularly at the monastery chapel, the town church, the Stuttgarter, and the castle church, the Schlosskirche. It was a combination of Luther's theological and pastoral concerns that led him to take the action that sparked the Reformation. It's worth noting that Martin Luther was first and foremost a professor. Secondly, he is a pastor. Whereas John Calvin, the second generation reformer, was first and foremost a pastor and secondly a professor. Martin Luther was also a monarchist in an area with the Teller Prince, whereas Calvin was a Republican living in a, a city republic of Geneva. Luther had long been troubled spiritually with the righteousness of God. God demanded absolute righteousness. Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy as I am holy. We are obligated to love God wholeheartedly and we are obligated to love our neighbours as ourselves. It was because of his great concern for his spiritual eternal salvation, Martin Luther sought to flee from the world. In spite of the bitter grief and anger of his father, he had buried himself in the cloister and devoted himself to a life of strictest asceticism. In the Middle Ages, if you were serious about God, you were expected to become a monk or a nun, and you would not get married, you wouldn't work in the normal society, you'd separate yourself physically, you'd have to make a vow of poverty and chastity and obedience to the order, and that was what was expected for people who were serious about God. And so Martin Luther is doing exactly this, burying himself in the cloister as a monk, and studying, yet despite devoting himself to earning his salvation by good works and cheerfully performing the humblest tasks and praying and fasting and chastening himself even beyond the strictest monastic rules, Martin Luther was still oppressed with a terrible sense of utter sinfulness in his lost condition. Then Martin Luther found some comfort in the devotional writings of Bernard of Clairvaux, who stressed the free grace of Christ for salvation. And the writings of Augustine provided further light. After all, he was an Augustinian order. And then as he began to study the scriptures in the original Hebrew and Greek, joy unspeakable flooded his heart. It was 1512, and he began to study Paul's epistle to the Romans. The verse, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is, by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Martin Luther testified that as he began to understand that this righteousness of God is a free gift of God by God's grace, which we may live by faith. I felt entirely born again, he wrote. I was led through open gates into paradise itself. Suddenly the whole of scripture had a different meaning to me. I recounted the passages which I had memorized and I realized that other passages too showed that the work of God is what God works in us. Thus St. Paul's words that the just shall live by faith did indeed become for me the gateway to paradise. The burden of his sin rolled away. Up till then, Martin Luther tried to earn his salvation by good works, but he never felt he'd been able to do enough. Now God has spoken to him through the scripture. Man is not saved by works, but by faith alone. Sola fide. As a doctor, Luther had taken an oath to faithfully serve the church by the study and the teaching of Holy Scripture. At the university is responsible to prepare pastors. Now having experienced God's grace in Christ, studying God's word, 
Luther began to see the emptiness, the self-absorption, the pious pretense, and the superstitious unbelief of his previous religious devotion. And now Luther could not fail to recognize the same pious fraud and pharisaical futility all around him. In 1510, before being made a professor at Wittenberg, Luther had been sent to Rome for his monastic order. And he, that meant he walked all the way from Germany, all the way across the Alps in, into Italy to Rome. What he saw there shocked and disillusioned him. Rome was the preeminent symbol of ancient civilization. Rome was the residence of Christ's vicar on earth, Christ's representative as mouthpiece, the Pope. Luther was horrified at the blatant immorality, the degeneracy prevalent in Rome. The centre of the medieval Roman Catholic Church was the Mass, the sacrament of the altar. The Roman Catholic institution placed a lot of emphasis on the punishment of sin in purgatory as a place of cleansing by fire before the faithful were deemed fit to enter heaven. So when a believer died, he didn't go to heaven or paradise, he went to purgatory and suffers in flames to prepare himself to be cleansed enough to go to heaven and he might be many, many years in purgatory. They taught that there were four sacraments that dealt with the forgiveness and the removal of sin and the cancellation of its punishment. Baptism, which gets rid of original sin and then the mass and penance and extreme unction, extreme unction being last rites. So the heart of penance is the priestly act of absolution whereby the priest pardons the sins and releases the penitent from eternal punishment. Upon the words of absolution pronounced by the priest, the penitent sinner receives the forgiveness of sins, release from eternal punishment and restoration to the state of grace until he sins again. This would require the sinner making some satisfaction by saying a prescribed number of prayers or by fasting or giving alms or going on a pilgrimage or taking part in a crusade. When I was being brought up, even I was in a secular family, I was sent to a Catholic school because I had a good reputation um, academically. I was at Moritz Brothers College in Rhodesia and we would be lined up to go to confession on Fridays in particular. And interestingly, um, after each confession you'd be given, you've got to pray the rosary or you've got to pray ten Hail Marys, one Our Father and this, that and the other. And you've had a whole, you know, maybe prayed the rosary ten times, something like this. Ten prayers for Mary, one prayer for the Father, ten for the Mary, one for the Father. It seems a bit bizarre, but anyway. Interestingly enough, my first confession was a lie, because I was such a goody-goody, I couldn't think of anything I'd done wrong, so I lied. They, when, I, when we asked, what do we confess? said, well, anything you've done wrong, like stealing money out of your mother's handbag. Well, I'd never done that, but that was my first confession, that I stole money out of my mother's handbag. I was such a goody-goody, I couldn't think of anything I'd ever done wrong. Which is typical of an unregenerate heart. The more unregenerate you are, the further away from God you are, the less you can see any sin. The closer we get to God, the more we realize how much we have failed in sin. But this was typical. You go and you have to pray so many prayers and go through the rosy so many times and so on. In time, the medieval church came to allow the penitent to substitute the payment of money for other forms of penalty of satisfaction. And don't think the Catholic Church is forcing this on the people. This is market driven. The people wanted it. Well, can't I pay money rather than going on this crusade or this pilgrimage or um, praying that many prayers? And, and so there was a demand from the church. It was super popular for people to pay money to get forgiveness of sins rather than to have to give the set prescribed number of prayers or go on the pilgrimage and so on. The priest could then issue an official statement and indulgence declaring the release from other penalties through the payment of money. In time, the Catholic Church came to allow indulgences to be bought not only for yourself but for your relatives and for your friends who had died and had gone to purgatory. They claimed that these indulgences would shorten the time that otherwise would have to be spent in purgatory. This practice of granting indulgences was based upon the Catholic doctrine of works of supererogation. This unbiblical doctrine claimed that works done beyond the demands of God's law earned a reward. And so you had the, the saints in Christ who had perfected holiness and they'd laid up a rich treasury of merits in heaven. And the Roman Catholic Church claimed it could draw upon this treasury of extra merits to provide satisfaction to those who paid a specific sum to the church. So, for example, the idea is that 
Mary, um, Cheri- the Mary, um, Mother Teresa, that she had done so much more than God's law could require. So she had a rich treasure of extra merits that you could draw upon. She prayed to uh, Mother Teresa that she would give some of the treasures to you and so on. And so this claim of the Catholic Church, they've got all these extra credits on these super saints which they can then give to the rest of us who are just normal common or garden Christians. The system of indulgences was very popular with the masses of people. They preferred to pay a sum of money to saying many prayers or partaking in many masses to shorten the suffering and purgatory of either themselves or a loved one. So the industry of indulgences became a tremendous source of income for the papacy. And this is a copy of a Latin indulgence. You can see this in the Reformation Museum in Wittenberg with space for putting in name of your relative and dates and how much money you're paying and how many years they got of purgatory. And you can see one of the treasure chests for the indulgences it's got a place at the top for you to slip the money in and it's got four padlocks around with four separate keys to ensure that the Pope got his money. This helped fund the building of the magnificent St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome and Pope Leo X authorised a plenary or total indulgence. Not just getting some years of purgatory, not just getting some sins forgiven, all your sins forgiven completely for this special indulgence. And so it was on this papal fundraising campaign to complete the construction of the St. Peter's Basilica that the Dominican monk and indulgence salesman extraordinary, Johann Tetzel, arrived in Saxony. In the shameless and scandalous manner in which Tetzel hawked the indulgences, outraged Professor Martin Luther. Sales jingled such as, as soon as the coin clinks in the chest, a soul flies up to heavenly rest. This was deceiving gullible people about their eternal souls. Martin Luther's study of the scripture had convinced him salvation comes by the grace of God alone, based upon the atonement of Christ on the cross alone, received by faith alone. He had studied the Psalms and he saw what real worship was. He had studied Galatians and seen what real faith is. And now he had studied Romans and saw what real salvation was and he didn't see any of that in the Roman Catholic Church. Indulgences could not remove any guilt. Indulgences could only induce a false sense of security. People were being deceived for eternity. Concerns that now had been growing since his visit to Rome in 1510 led Martin Luther to make a formal objection to the abuse of indulgences. On All Saints Day, the 1st of November, people would be coming from far and wide to view the more than 5,000 relics exhibited in the Slosskirche. The castle church had been built specifically for the purpose of housing the biggest collection of relics in the Christian world. Prince Frederick of Saxony had acquired these by a lot of diligent hard work and money, getting everything from wood from the true cross of Christ. As Martin Luther said, we have enough wood from the true cross of Christ to build a new ark. And there's enough nails that pierced Christ on the cross to shoe all the horses in Saxony. And 13 of the 12 apostles are buried in Spain. And in the source curse it included things like an egg laid by the Holy Spirit when he is a dove, bread from the Last Supper, milk from the Virgin Mary. Seriously, they actually claimed all this. If you reverenced all 5,000 relics in the Slosh Kirche, you could get a million years of purgatory. What a deal. So Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg because the next day people are going to be lining up there to pay money to come and reverence these relics uh, to get indulgences and to earn years of purgatory. These Theses created such a sensation that within two weeks they'd been printed and read throughout Germany. Some enterprising printer took it down, got it printed and distributed throughout all of Germany. And within a month there were translations being printed and sold all over Europe. The 95 Theses begin with the words, Since our Lord and Master Jesus Christ says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He wants the whole life of a believer to be a life of repentance. Martin Luther maintained no sacrament can take away our responsibility to respond to Christ's command by an inner repentance evidenced by an outer change and a transformation and renewal of our entire life. You can't buy something to replace the need for personal repentance. 
Luther emphasized God alone can forgive sins. The Pope cannot forgive your sins. No cardinal, no bishop, no priest. No one can forgive your sins except God alone. Indulgences are a fraud. It would be better to give your money to the poor than to waste your money on indulgences. If the Pope really had power over souls suffering and purgatory, why would he not release them out of pure Christian charity? Luther's 95 Theses radically undermined Tetzel's business, almost bringing the sale of indulgences to a standstill. Tetzel, Mazzoloni and John Eck published attacks on Luther defending the sale of indulgences. And with none of Martin Luther's friends rose to his defence, Martin Luther felt deserted. Many of his closest friends believed that he had been too rash in his criticism of this established church practice. So with the Pope's power challenged and a papal profits eroded, church officials mobilised their forces to bring this rebellious monk into line. First, the Augustinians at the regular meeting in Heidelberg sought to silence Luther to no avail. Then he underwent three excruciating interviews with Cardinal Cajetan in Augsburg. But he outmanoeuvred uh, the Cardinal every time. So then in June 1519, Johann Eck, considered the greatest mind in Catholicism, debated Luther in Leipzig. Some of the close friends of Luther tried to persuade him to settle matters peacefully by giving in, just give in, just recant. But to Luther, this was now a matter of principle. Scriptural truth and eternal souls were at stake. In preparation for the Leipzig debate, Luther plunged into the study of church history and canon law. His studies convinced Luther that many of the decretals, like the donation of Constantine, where apparently the Emperor Constantine donated uh, the powers of Rome and its empire to the Pope, uh, discovered these were forgeries. On the 4th of July 1519, Eck and Luther faced one another in Leipzig, the debate of the century. The issue was debating the supremacy of the Pope. Martin Luther pointed out that the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Greek Church, was part of the Church of Christ, even though it never acknowledged the supremacy of the bishops in Rome. The great church councils, Nicaea, Chalcedon, Ephesus, they knew nothing about papal supremacy. How can that now be essential for salvation? But Eck maneuvered Luther into a corner and provoked him to defend some of the teachings of the condemned heretic, Professor Jan Hus from Prague. By making Martin Luther openly take a stand on the side of a man officially condemned by the church as a heretic and burned at the stake in 1415, Eck was convinced he had won the debate. However, Professor Luther greatly strengthened his cause amongst his followers. He won many new supporters, including Martin Bucer, who became a crucial leader of the Reformation. Bucer even helped to disciple John Calvin. Luther published an account of the Leipzig debate and followed this up with an abundance of teaching pamphlets. On good works, had a far-reaching effect, teaching man is saved by faith alone. The noblest of good works is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther maintained that shoemakers and housewives and farmers and businessmen, if they do the work to the glory of God, are more pleasing to God than monks and nuns. God wants us to be having a Christian work ethic. Every profession of life can be used to the honour of God. Dairymaids could milk cows to the glory of God. So Luther's writings started to fill the world. At one time, more than half of all the printed works in the world were Martin Luther's writings. He dominated the landscape. On the 15th of June, 1520, Pope Leo X signed the bull excommunicating Luther, describing his teaching as heretical, scandalous, false, offensive, seducing. The bull called upon all Christians to burn Martin Luther's books and to forbid Martin Luther to preach. All towns and districts that sheltered him would be placed under an interdict, which means effectively excommunicated. In response, Luther wrote against the execrable bull of Antichrist. On the 10th of December, 1520, Surrounded by a large crowd of students and lecturers, Martin Luther burned the papal bull along with the books of canon law outside the walls of Wittenberg. Having exhausted all ecclesiastical means to bring Martin Luther to heal, Pope Leo now appealed to the emperor to deal with Martin Luther. Previously in 1518, when the Pope had summoned Luther to Rome, Prince Frederick had brought all his influence to have this papal summons cancelled. When Luther was summoned to Augsburg and Leipzig, for the debate, Prince Frederick arranged for safe conduct guarantees. Now, Emperor Maximilian had died. Charles V of Spain had been elected Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Prince Frederick himself had once been a serious contender for the position of Emperor. 
he still held tremendous influence. So he prevailed upon Charles V to guarantee safe conduct for Martin Luther as he was summoned to Worms for a council of German uh, rulers. The year before his summons to the Diet of Worms, Luther published some of his most powerful, influential treaties. In his address to the German nobility of August 1520, he called on the princes to correct the abuses within the church to free the German church from the exploitation of Rome. The princes are ministers of justice, and their job is to protect the ministers of grace in the church. In the Babylonian captivity of the church of October 1520, Luther wrote, Rome's sacrament system is holding Christians captive like the Babylonian captivity of the church. He attacked the papacy for depriving individual Christians of their freedom to approach God directly by faith without the mediation of unbiblical priests and sacraments. You can pray to God directly. You don't have to go to the priest and say please pray for me. You can go to a minister or council and say please pray with me but you don't get someone else to pray in your place. We can pray directly to God. We don't need to go through priests, popes, cardinals or through Mary, Joseph or any of the saints we could pray directly to Christ there's one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus Jesus is the way, the truth and life no one comes to the Father except through him to be valid Martin Luther wrote a sacrament had to be instituted by Christ and had to be exclusively Christian by these tests he could find no justification for five of the seven Roman Catholic sacraments Martin Luther retained only baptism and the Lord's Supper, and he placed these two within the community of believers, not in the hands of the church hierarchy. Indeed, Martin Luther dismissed the traditional view of the church as a sacred hierarchy headed by the Pope, and he presented the biblical view of the church as a community of the regenerate, of the born again, in which all believers are priests, having direct access to God through Christ. This doesn't mean all believers are priests, are preachers but all believers are priests in the sense a priest is a holy bridge builder a priest stands between man and God a priest speaks to God on behalf of man, a priest speaks uh, to man on behalf of God and so we can have direct access to God through Christ, the only mediator, no man comes to God except through Christ in the liberty of the Christian man November 1520 Luther presented the essentials of Christian belief and behaviour he removed the necessity for monasticism by stressing the essence of Christian living lies in serving God in a calling, whether secular or ecclesiastically, taught Christian vocation. In promoting this Protestant work ethic, Luther laid the foundation for free enterprise and the tremendous productivity that has inspired. He taught good works do not make a man good, but a good man does do good works. Faith does not produce a tree, but a tree does produce fruit. We are not saved by doing good works, we are saved by grace alone. But once we are saved, we should expect good works to flow out the fruit of true faith. Good works is a fruit of salvation, it's not a root of salvation. Summoned to Worms, Martin Luther believed he was going to his death. He insisted his co-worker Philip Melanchthon remain in Wittenberg. My dear brother, if I don't come back, if my enemies put me to death, you will go on teaching and standing fast in the truth. If you live, my, life, my death will matter little. At this stage, Martin Luther was just 37 years old. He had been excommunicated by the Pope, and Luther would remember that the martyr, Professor Jan Hus, a century before, travelled to Constance with an imperial safe conduct guarantee, which was not honoured. Hus was not allowed any defence, and he was burned at the stake. Luther declared, Though Hus was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ lives. I shall go to Worms, though there be as many devils there as tiles on the roofs. Luther's journey to Worms was like a victory parade. Crowds lined the roads, cheering for this man who dared to stand up for Germany against the Pope. On a four o'clock on Wednesday, the 17th of April, Luther stood before the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire. Charles V, Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, ruled all the Austrian domains, Spain, Netherlands, a large part of Italy, and the Americas. At 21 years old, Charles V ruled over a territory larger than any man since Charlemagne. Amidst the pomp and splendor of the imperial gathering, stood the throne of the Emperor on a raised platform, flanked by knights in gleaming armor, six princes, 24 dukes, 30 archbishops and bishops, and seven ambassadors. 
Luther was asked to identify where the books and table were his writings, and upon his confirmation that they were, the official asked, do you wish to retract them, or do you adhere to them and continue to assert them? Now Martin Luther had come expecting an opportunity to debate the issues. It was now made clear to him no debate was to be tolerated. The imperial diet was ordering him to recant all his writings. So Luther requested more time that he might answer the questions without injury to the word of God and without peril to his soul. And the emperor granted him just 24 hours. The next day, Thursday the 18th of April, as the sun was setting and the torches were being lit, Luther was ushered into August assembly. He was asked again whether he'd recant what he'd written. Luther responded that some of his books taught established Christian doctrine on faith and good works. He could not deny established Christian doctrines. Other of his books attacked the papacy, and to retract these would be to encourage tyranny and cover up evil. In the third category of books, he had responded to individuals who were defending popery. In these, Luther admitted he had written too harshly. The examiner was not satisfied. You must give a simple, clear and proper answer. Will you recant or not? Luther's response, first given in Latin and then repeated in German so that everyone around would understand him, shook the world. Unless I'm convinced by scripture or by clear reasoning that I'm in error, for popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves. I cannot recant, for I'm subject to the scriptures I've quoted. My conscience has captured the word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. Amen. Amidst the shocked silence, cheers ran out for this courageous man who had dared to stand up to the emperor and to the pope. Luther turned and he left the tribunal and numerous German nobles and knights formed a circle around Luther to escort him safely back to his quarters. The emperor was furious. However, Prince Frederick insisted that Charles V must honour the guarantee of safe conduct to Luther. So Charles V raged against this devil in the habit of a monk and issued the Edict of Worms which declared Martin Luther an outlaw, ordering his arrest and death as a heretic. No protection law, anyone, anywhere could kill him and get a reward. As Luther travelled back to Wittenberg, preaching at towns on the way, armed horsemen plunged out of the forest and snatched Luther from his wagon and dragged him off to Wartburg Castle. But this was, in fact, a kidnapping arranged by his friend, Prince Frederick, amidst great secrecy, to preserve Luther's life. Despite the Emperor's decree that anyone helping Luther was subject to loss of their life and their property, the prince had risked his throne and his life to protect his pastor and his professor. And this is very hard for Prince Frederick because one of his pet projects was his massive collection of, of relics. And uh, here, Luther's attacking his relics, and he had to choose his relics or his professor and his uh, university. And he chose Professor Luther and the university over his uh, relics and superstitions. For the ten months that Martin Luther was hidden in Wartburg Castle as Knight George or Junker York, he translated the German, the New Testament into German. And he wrote booklets like On Confession, where the Pope's authority is required, on the absolution, on the abolition of private masses and monastic vows. This is the desk and the room in which he did the translation of the New Testament into German. And you can still see a spot on the wall where Martin Luther flung the inkwell at the devil when the devil appeared to uh, tempt him during his time of Bible translation. By 1522, the New Testament in German was on sale for about a week's wages. Before the printing press, it would cost you two years' wages to buy a Bible, because they all had to be handwritten. But the printing press enabled a Bible, or in this case a New Testament, to be available for just a week's wages. In Luther's absence, Professor Andreas Karlstadt instituted revolutionary changes which led to growing social unrest. So in March 1522, Luther returned to Wittenberg and in ten days of intensive preaching renounced a lot of Karlstadt's innovations, declaring he had placed too much emphasis on external reforms and he had introduced a new legalism that was threatening to overshadow justification by faith and the spirituality of the gospel. Luther feared that this new legalism being introduced would undermine the Reformation movement from within. When the peasants' revolt erupted, Luther was horrified at the anarchy and the chaos and the bloodshed. And he repudiated the revolutionaries he wrote against the robbing, murdering horde of peasants. 
It glanced at the devastation caused by the peasant revolt. Luther taught the princes had the duty to restore social order and to crush the insurrection. Also in 1525, on the 13th of June, Luther married Catherine von Bora, a former nun from a noble family. Luther called home life the school of character and he stressed the importance of the family as the basic building block of society. Luther said he learned more discipleship in one year of marriage than he had in ten years, sorry, in te- in, than he had in ten years in a monastery. Luther and Katie were blessed with six children. Martin Luther formed effectively the first pastor's family. Also in fifteen twenty five, a busy year, Luther wrote one of the most important books on the bondage of the will, in response to Erasmus's book on the freedom of the will, published in fifteen twenty four. Martin Luther pointed out, we are free to choose what we want, but we are not free to choose what we should. Yes, you can choose what you want to eat and what colours your preference and all sorts of things, but when it comes to eternal matters, our sinful nature tends to choose against God and for sin. And so, he says, we need, we need God to overrule our will, to be merciful, to be gracious, to redeem us, to regenerate us from within. We would not even have faith or repentance but that it's given to us by God, as Ephesians 2 teaches. That the, he said, I prefer to have my will in bondage to God than in bondage to sin. Luther responded scathingly to Erasmus' theories on free will. He argued that a man's free will is so utterly in bondage to sin, only God's action can save. If it was up to us to be saved, none of us would get saved. If it was up to us to stay saved, none of us would stay saved. It is God who initiates. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. We are unable to save ourselves. Luther articulated the Augustinian view of predestination. He declared he had preferred that his salvation is in God's hands than in his own hands. As a result of this exchange between Luther and Erasmus, many Renaissance humanist scholars stopped supporting Luther, which previously they had because he was rebelling against the Pope, so they, they liked that. But when they saw that he was against humanism as well, then they lost interest. The Reformation not only brought about sweeping changes in the church, but dramatic changes in all of society. First of all, the Reformation focused on bringing doctrines and forms of church government and worship and daily life into conformity to the Word of God. But of course this had tremendous implications for political, economic, social and cultural life as well. This is the uh, Wittenberg marketplace with a statue to Martin Luther and to Melanchthon and there's the spires of the Stuttgarter behind. Luther revised the Latin liturgy and he translated it into German. Now the laity received communion in both bread and wine as the Hussites had taught a century before. To the Catholics even today as the um, laity you can receive the wafer but you can't receive the, the wine because that symbolized the blood of Christ and what if you spilled some of the blood of Christ so only the clergy could have the wine and the laity just got the wafer but now Martin Luther taught no you give both the bread and the wine symbolically to the average church member the whole emphasis on church services changed from the sacramental celebration of the mass as a sacrifice to the preaching and teaching of God's word being central having our minds renewed by the word of God God's word above all things. Martin Luther maintained every person has the right and the duty to read and study the Bible in his own language. This became the foundation of the Reformation. How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord. It's laid for the saints in his excellent word. A careful study of the Bible as the source of all truth and as the only legitimate authority for all questions of faith and conduct. The church is a community of believers not a hierarchy of officials. The church is an organism rather than an organization. It's a living body in which each believer is a member. Martin Luther stressed the priesthood of all believers. We do not gain salvation through the church. We become members of the church when we become believers, when we are born again, regenerate. The Reformation dealt with basic principles, primary issues such as authority. The church is not our authority. The Bible is our authority. The Bible alone is authority, not the councils or leaders of the church. The Bible is above tradition. All leaders are under the Bible. Secondly, salvation is by the grace of God alone, accomplished by the atonement, the blood sacrifice of Christ alone, received by faith alone. 
Grace comes through sacraments. You're not saved by baptism. Baptism symbolizes your salvation. You're not saved by taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper symbolizes the salvation we receive from Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. It's not the drinking of the wine that saves us. It's the blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary that saves us. The church is composed of the elect. Those regenerate, born again by God's Holy Spirit. He taught regenerate church membership. Your name might be written in a church register, but is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life in heaven? That's the key thing. Are you born again? The priesthood, well, all believers are priests. He taught the priesthood of all believers, not the pastorhood or preacherhood of all believers, but the priesthood. We all can pray to God directly. We don't have to go to a priest and ask him to pray in our stead because we're not able to pray ourselves. The battle cries of the Reformation were really around five solas. These are Latin terms, sola meaning only. Solus Christus, Christ alone is the head of the church. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Sola Gracia, salvation is by the grace of God alone. Sola Fide, justification is received by faith alone. And Soli Dio Gloria, everything is to be done for the glory of God alone. On every one-man coin in South Africa, we still have Soli Dio Gloria, the battle cry of the Reformation emblazoned. Uh, engraved. These are the five solas of the Reformation, which is the, the five principles that every Protestant church must adhere to. Despite Luther being declared an outlaw by the Emperor, he survived to minister and write for 25 more years, and he died, possibly of poison, 18th of February 1546. In spite of many illnesses, Martin Luther remained very active and productive as an advisor to princes, theologians, and pastors. He published major commentaries, he produced great quantities of books and pamphlets, and he completed the translation of the Old Testament into German by 1534. Luther continued preaching and teaching to the end of his life. He frequently entertained students and guests in his home. He produced some beautiful poems and hymns, including one hymn that will live forever, which we sang earlier, Ein Festenburg ist unser Gott, A Mighty Fortress is Our God which is the most popular hymn of the Protestant churches. It's the most popular hymn of the persecuted church. And it's a hymn that I'm sure will be around for as long as the church is on earth. Luther did a great deal to promote education. He labored tirelessly for the establishment of schools everywhere. Luther wrote his shorter catechism in order to train up children in the essential doctrines of the faith. When Luther was asked, what's the most important book you wrote? He said, I'd rather all my books be forgotten and the scripture alone be read. And then he said, but I'd like the catechism to remain. Because the catechism taught scriptures to children. So this theologian taught his catechism more important than all his theological books. It has been common to portray Luther as a simple, obscure monk. The Americans love that term, a simple, obscure monk, who challenged the Pope and Emperor. But Luther was anything but simple or obscure. He was learned, experienced and accomplished far beyond most men of his age. He had lived in Magdeburg, Eisenacht, and was one of the most distinguished graduates of the University of Erfurt. Luther travelled to Cologne, to Leipzig, and he had crossed the Alps and he had walked all the way to Rome. He was a great student. He had a tremendous breadth of reading. He had excelled in his studies. He had achieved his Masters of Arts, his Doctorate in Theology in record time. He was an accomplished, best-selling author one of the greatest preachers of all time, a highly respected theological professor, one of the first professors to lecture in a German language instead of in Latin, hardly a simple and obscure monk. Far from being a simple monk, Luther was the prior of his monastery and a district vicar of 11 other monasteries. He was a monk, a priest, a preacher, a professor, a writer and a reformer. He was one of the most courageous and influential people in all of history which is the way he's depicted in the Reformation Monument at Worms. Other reformers at his feet, but Martin Luther towers above them all. Martin Luther designed the Luther Rose, a black cross and a red heart, symbolizing the heart of our problem is the problem of the heart. The sin in the heart needs to be dealt with by the cross of Christ. And the white lilies around, symbolizing the fruit of the Spirit, are the fruits of faith, and then blue circle around symbolizing heaven and then the gold ring around symbolizing God's covenant and his love which is without beginning and without end eternal. That's the Luther Rose which you can see symbolized in architecture in the Schlosskirche in Wittenberg 
The Lutheran faith was not only adopted in northern Germany, but also throughout Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland and Iceland, and Scandinavian countries. Luther was a controversial figure in his day, and he's continued to be considered controversial to this day. I've got people who hate me uh, because I celebrate Reformation Day, and I know there's one man who dedicated his life since then to attacking myself personally on a mission in general, because he claims Martin Luther was an anti-Semite, and uh, he's responsible for the Holocaust and other garbage like this. Whole websites are set up to attack Martin Luther. But Martin Luther's search for peace with God changed the whole course of human history. It's because of Luther that we have Bibles available in our own language. He challenged the power of Rome over the Christian church. He smashed the chains of superstition and tyranny. He restored Christian liberty to worship God in spirit and truth. If you like the idea of gathering in church and sitting rather than standing the whole service, you can thank Luther and the Reformation. Before the Reformation, there were no seats or pews in churches. People came to church and they stood the whole service. There was no seating arrangement at all. And you heard a service in Latin, not in your home language. If you like the idea of hearing a service in a language you understand, you can thank the Reformation. And if you like the idea of congregational singing in a language you understand, you can thank the Reformation. Before the Reformation, people went to church to hear the choir sing in Latin, a language most of them didn't understand. But the congregation did not sing. And so the worshipping God and spirit and truth came from the Reformation. Martin Luther said, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation of everyone who believes. Do you believe? Have you been born again? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. Do you live by faith? 